come and read God's Word together this morning. Our scripture reading for the sermon today is once again from Acts chapter 13. I think I can say that this is the last time we're going to read verses from this chapter in this study of Acts. Let's read together verses 44 through 40 or through 52 through the end of the chapter today. Listen here as I read the Word of God. Pay careful attention, for it is God's Word. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the Word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the Word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, Believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy. And with the Holy Spirit. And all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated this morning and let us pray together as we come to consider God's Word to us. Our Father, again, how grateful we are for the high privilege of hearing the words that You have breathed out. Of meditating on them. Of hiding them in our hearts. Father, we acknowledge that these are Your words that men moved by the Holy Spirit wrote these things down, that these are the very breathed out words of the Most High God. And so, Father, as we come to them, we come knowing that they are inerrant, infallible, and, Father, that they are full of life-giving, life-transforming power, that they are profitable, that they are effective in so many ways in our lives. And so we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would help us to understand And Father, that more than just hearing, that we would become people who are doers of your word. And so, Father, may the words of my mouth this morning, may the meditations of our hearts this day be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, I know I've been saying it for the past three weeks at least, but today, Lord willing, we're going to finish Acts chapter 13, unless God's providence brings some catastrophe that prevents us from finishing the service today, or the Lord returns before we're done here today. My plan is to move on to chapter 14 with you next week. So together, over the past five weeks or so, we've been reveling in this great chapter and in this great Christ-exalting sermon that Paul preached in this chapter in the synagogue in the city of Pisidian Antioch. And over the past couple weeks, we have been seeing the various reactions and responses 
to the Word of God, to the Gospel that Paul preached, that different people had to it there in Antioch. We saw the response of initial interest, which we saw did not by any means guarantee a genuine acceptance of the gospel because the very next week, a bunch of the Jews who were initially interested ended up rejecting the word out of prideful jealousy, which was dominating their sinful hearts. And then last week, we saw the response of joyful acceptance as all of those Gentiles who had been before the foundations of the world appointed by God for salvation as they all believed with hearts that had been regenerated by the Holy Spirit who had raised them like Lazarus from his tomb to newness of life in Jesus Christ. And so today, we're going to look together at these closing few verses of chapter 13 one more time, and we're going to focus in on the fruit, on some specific fruit that began to be born in the lives of those believing Gentiles as a result of this living faith that God had given them in Jesus Christ and of the divine power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to transform their lives by the renewing of their minds. And the fruit that these verses reveal to us that was being born in the lives of these believing Gentiles was not just the fruit of personal, individual holiness and resistance of temptation and avoidance of moral impurity and ungodliness. It was all of that. It started there. But ultimately, it went beyond that. Ultimately, the true fruit of the gospel that Luke records for us here in the lives of these Gentiles extended beyond themselves and into the souls and the lives of others who also needed to be saved and to be sanctified from sin. It was the fruit of evangelism. It was a fruit of going and making disciples. It was the fruit of the gospel. And so we saw last week in verse 48 that the Gentile believers, when they heard the word of the Lord, were rejoicing and glorifying the word of God. And then verse 49 says, they were spreading the word of God all throughout the entire region. And even though there was opposition, probably even persecution that they faced, like Paul and Barnabas did, because of their faith in the Word of God. And even though that opposition had forced Paul and Barnabas out of not just Antioch, but the entire districts, the disciples who remained there, these Gentile believers who remained there, were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, verse 52 says. So let's look together at this wonderful work of the Holy Spirit in their lives today and tune our minds and tune our hearts to what God has to teach us and exhort us with in His Word here today. Last week again, we looked very briefly at Luke's report there in verse 48 that when the Gentiles heard that the light of the gospel of God's redeeming grace and love had come to shine on them, on the Gentiles... 
that they began rejoicing, that they began glorifying the word of the Lord. And that, of course, is remarkable. That, of course, is nothing short of miraculous that the Gentiles would be glorifying the word of the Lord. Because, see, while the Jews had at least the word of the one true God which was revealed to them through their prophets, the Gentiles, in their sin, did not have the word of God. They were simply dwelling in utter darkness and unbelief and worshiping every kind of idol and false god that the sinful human mind and heart can imagine and can conjure up. And so for the grace of God to shine on them was a massive display of divine love. And for their blind eyes to be opened up to it was a massive display of divine power. And all of it was a massive display of divine purpose. Because God had purpose since eternity past to bring the light of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentiles. To redeem for himself a fallen people from every tongue and from every nation. Paul talks about this awesome truth in Romans chapter 10. Where he says that faith comes from hearing. Remember verse 17 of Romans 10. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. In Romans 10, Paul is exhorting the Christians in Rome to preach the gospel to the world around them because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who hear it, to all who believe it. Not only the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And when people who were appointed for salvation hear the gospel, the Holy Spirit works through the gospel, to raise them from spiritual death, to open their blind eyes, and to give them true living faith, and to save them from their sins. And in talking about that, in proclaiming all of that there in Romans chapter 10, Paul quotes from the Old Testament scriptures, and he says this, he says that the voice of the Lord has gone out to all the earth, and that when Israel, the chosen nation, that God gave His Word to, who were supposed to then take it and proclaim it to the rest of the nations in the world, when Israel instead rejected God's Word and kept falling into sin and idolatry and rebellion against God over and over and over again, He said that He would make Israel jealous by bringing the light of His truth and His redeeming love to people from the rest of the world around them, to the nations. And then Paul, in saying all of that, quotes these wonderful, beautiful, mind-blowing words from Isaiah chapter 65, where God says, I have been found by those who did not seek me. And I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And that's the Gentiles, right? 
They weren't looking for God. They weren't seeking God. They weren't trying to worship the one true God and just missing the mark a little bit. They were suppressing His truth. They were rejecting Him. They were choosing false gods and graven images and idols instead of Him. They were worshiping the creation instead of the Creator. And then he says, but to Israel, God says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and a contrary people. So you see the great contrast that Paul's making in Romans chapter 10? God's Word, God's holiness, God's truth, God's law, His love, His power, His providence, His sovereign works were massively clearly, obviously, manifest and evident in Israel for centuries, and yet they rejected Him. God spoke to them directly through the prophets. And miraculous things happened in their midst by the almighty power of God. The the sea was parted. Manna fell out of heaven. Water came flowing out of the rock. Walls fell down. The sun stood still in the sky. People were raised from the dead. God manifested Himself in His might and His power and His mercy and held out His hands to Israel in countless and undeniable ways. And still in the hardness of their stubborn, prideful, sinful hearts, they persistently rejected Him. They demonstrated One side of that coin that we looked at last week. Sinful, prideful, human responsibility for the wicked audacity of suppressing God's truth and refusing to honor Him as God and rejecting His Word and Him. And so, in response, Paul says in Romans 10, God demonstrated the other side of that coin to the nations, to the Gentiles. He demonstrated sovereign, redeeming, life-giving, life-transforming mercy in causing people to be found who were not even looking for Him. In causing people to see His glory and His grace and rejoice in it who were not even asking for Him. And that's that's all of us, right? Who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We weren't looking for God. We weren't asking for God. We were actively suppressing His truth and running from Him. We weren't seeking Him. Because no one understands and no one seeks for God, Paul so clearly says in verse 11 of Romans chapter 3. No, God sought us. Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the only begotten Son of God, came to seek us, to save us who were helplessly lost, who were dead and incapable of responding to God who were blind in our sinful unbelief until the power of God and the light of the gospel 
miraculously and supernaturally opened our eyes and raised us to newness of life in the resurrected Jesus Christ. So what happened here in Acts 13 to the Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch is nothing short of a miracle. These are the true miracles in the book of Acts. When dead souls are brought to life, when blind eyes are opened, when God-hating people suddenly start glorifying the word of the Lord, they weren't seeking Him. And by His sovereign regenerating grace, they found Him. So make no mistake, nowhere in the book of Acts, certainly not here in chapter 13 in the first recorded sermon we have from the Apostle Paul, nowhere in the book of Acts do you find anything resembling so-called seeker-sensitive ministry. Seeker-sensitive ministry is always doomed to fail in a fallen world where there simply are no seekers because no one seeks after God. It's like, it's like a veterinarian deciding to focus his entire practice on caring for unicorns. I mean, he's, he's not going to be very successful trying to care for things that don't even exist, right? The only kind of ministry that can ever see people who are dead in their sins raised to newness of life and reconciled to the God who they were at enmity with is the ministry of preaching the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation. And that's what we see Paul doing. That's what we see the apostles modeling all throughout the book of Acts. They're not trying to cleverly persuade so-called seekers to give Jesus a chance. They're not trying to accommodate the word or the worship of God to the culture who some people imagine are all out there genuinely seeking truth. No, they're not. They're all out there actively suppressing the truth and exchanging it for lies and worshiping the creation instead of the Creator and refusing to honor the true God as God and as Lord. That's what we were all doing. And the only thing that can change that is the gracious, loving power of God working through His living and active Word which proclaims that all people are dead in their sins and trespasses and that the only way of salvation is Christ and the blood that He shed to cover our sins. And when the unbelieving and unregenerate, truth-suppressing Gentiles in Antioch heard that message, they rejoiced. They glorified the Word of God. And the thing is, that is not what unregenerated hearts do by nature. Unregenerated hearts do not rejoice in the true gospel. They do not glorify the true word of God. But those Gentiles did. Because God supernaturally raised them. God crucified their hearts of stone and gave them new hearts of flesh. See, what what unregenerate hearts do 
in spiritual deadness to God, in response to the gospel, is they either outright reject it, initially or eventually, like we saw a couple of weeks ago from Jesus' parable in Matthew chapter 13, or they twist it, they distort it, they pervert it, they exchange its call to repentance from sin and faith in Jesus exclusively for a false gospel that is somehow more palatable to their sinful flesh. That's what unregenerate hearts do. And that's why there are all kinds of false gospels being perpetrated out there. Perversions of the true gospel that unbelievers have invented and introduced into this world. People who don't want to admit that their biggest problem is their own sin. And that the wrath of God that pours down from heaven against them is coming. They have said for centuries that the gospel isn't really about Jesus dying and bearing the wrath of God for us in our place as our substitute on the cross. Now, instead, they've exchanged the truth for a lie and tried to insist that the, the message of the gospel is all about Jesus setting a, a good moral example for all of us to follow of how to love one another sacrificially. It's kind of like Aesop's fables, you see. When we learn the moral of the story, we're able in our own natural ability to emulate it, to follow the good example to live our lives more productively. And in that kind of a system of false teaching, the good news of that distortion of the Gospel of Jesus Christ is that by doing that, by following the good example and being better people, we make the world a better place. Or, People who don't want to admit that their biggest need is to be delivered from sin and death and everlasting condemnation want to insist that their biggest needs are things like sadness or loneliness or low self-esteem or depression or insecurity and then see they distort the gospel into a message that says that God's greatest desire and purpose is to help us with those kinds of problems instead of to deliver us from the bondage of our own sin, which very ironically and very often is actually the underlying cause of those kinds of problems. Or people who don't want to admit that the real problem in this world is the wretchedness of human sin, their sin, they will try, and they have tried for years and decades, to argue that the real problem in the world isn't sin that's in me, It's all of the oppression out there that's being done to me. And so they twist and they distort and they pervert the gospel and try to make the message all about liberation from whatever kind of oppression they want to find freedom from in this world. Racial oppression, economic oppression, the oppression of women by men. And it's not that that stuff doesn't go on in the world. It's that those forms of injustice in the world are the manifestations of a much greater problem. The problem of human sin, rebellion against the God who made us all in His image. 
And until that problem is addressed, and we are all given new hearts, and transformed by the renewing of our minds, then the only answers to the realities of injustice in the world that the world will try to propose will only ever ultimately perpetrate more injustice in the world. And we're seeing that today, of course. We've talked about that a lot. Only the true gospel can crush human pride and raise dead human hearts and cause them to become joyfully submitted to God, to His law, to His truth. And those are, those are just a few of the many, many ways that sinful, unregenerate human hearts can and have and still do twist and distort and pervert the gospel because fallen people want to insist that their biggest problem is something outside of them instead of admitting that it, it is them. The heart that is, is dead in sin will not admit that, right? The unregenerate human heart refuses to acknowledge that it is hopelessly sinful and that God is infinitely holy and that the only hope of eternal life is trusting what He does for us instead of trusting in what we can do for ourselves. But see, Luke says that the Gentiles who truly believed the gospel rejoiced in it. Glorified the word of God rather than rejecting it, rather than twisting it or distorting it, trying to avoid its indictment of their own sin. They rejoiced in it. Rather than trying to avoid the words exaltation of God's holiness and its announcement that, that, that our salvation depends exclusively on what He does for us because our sin is so desperate that we're absolutely helpless to do anything for ourselves. They rejoiced in that news. Truly regenerate hearts hate their own sin. And they revel in God's grace. Truly regenerated hearts are not like the Pharisees of Jesus' day. They were very, very concerned about sin, but they were very, very concerned about other people's sin, not their own. Paul was a Pharisee before he came to Christ before Christ came to him. Paul was consumed with self-righteousness. Paul was absolutely convinced that the worst sinners in the world were all of the people other than him. But after the Lord Jesus crucified his heart of stone and raised him to newness of life, Paul would absolutely rejoice in 1 Timothy 1.15, that Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners of whom He said, I am the foremost. And you know what He meant by that, right? He didn't mean that 
quantitatively speaking, he actually had more sin in his life than the rest of us have. Now, what he meant was that of all of the sin that remains in all of the hearts of all of the people for whom Christ died in this world, that the sin that he's most concerned about, the sin that bothers him the most, the sin that he's most anxious to see something done about is not anyone else's sin, it's his own sin. And that is a sign of a heart that truly rejoices in the gospel and that glorifies the word of God. One of the other primary signs of a heart that rejoices in the gospel and glorifies the word of God is that that heart becomes more and more dominated with a love for God that then generates fruitful obedience to God instead of being dominated by a spirit of pride like the Pharisees who again were obedient to the law in a way, but their conformity to the law was contrary to real holiness. The heart of one who rejoices in the gospel is the heart that loves God and wants to keep His commandments. It's not a heart that generates some kind of conformity through pride or by a spirit of fear that produces an outward kind of obedience that, that again, is really more like the Pharisees than the, than the kind of obedience that Jesus desires. You remember what Jesus said about the Pharisees? He said, they strained the gnats. Little tiny flying bugs. They strained them. They were meticulous not to have any gnats in their cup of tea while at the same time they were swallowing a camel. You remember what he meant? They were so meticulously rigorous about the way that they kept the law that it was, it was both ridiculous and hypocritical. They were ridiculous because, for example, for Jesus' example, when they, when they tithed, they even tithed on their herbs like mint and cumin. Right? They'd, they'd go to the market and they'd buy a little bit of mint and they made sure because they were so self-righteous and holier than thou that they would take a little bit of the mint and, and tithe that to God. That's how fastidious they were about making sure that they got it right. But all along... They missed the entire point of the law altogether because they absolutely failed at what Jesus calls the weightier matters of the law. What really matters in the law of God. What truly reflects the heart of God in the law. His justice, His faithfulness, His mercy. They knew none of that towards their fellow man. Because their precision in doing the right stuff wasn't driven by a love for God. It was driven by an all-consuming focus on 
self. It was driven by pride. And sometimes, Christians, more often than we care to admit, the residue of that same pharisaical self-righteousness remains in us and is lurking behind our own pursuit of holiness. Or what about this? See if this rings true. Or our pursuit of holiness as God's children is often driven more by a fear of God's disapproval or of Him being angry with us, of Him being disappointed with us, or of Him just being being done with us and just letting us have it. Then it is driven by a love for Him who has so loved us that He sent His Son to die for our sins so that we might be called children of God. And see, that impulse, where where obedience is fueled by fear, that impulse shares something at its very core with the kind of pharisaical obedience that is produced by pride. You see what it is that they have in common? It's this, it's that they both come from a fundamental focus on Self, on me, not on God. Either I'm obeying in order to stroke my own pride or to assuage my own fear. But not first and foremost because I love my God who so loved me. Listen to the words of the Belgic Confession. And this is Article 24. A friend of mine reminded me of this passage just this morning. It says, So far from making people cold toward living in a pious and holy way, true justifying faith, quite to the contrary, so works within them that apart from it, they will never do a thing out of love for God, but only out of a love for themselves and a fear of being condemned. True justifying faith motivates us out of love, not fear. It's selfishness that motivates out of fear. Confession goes on, it says, but it is impossible for this true, holy faith to be unfruitful in any human being where it resides, seeing that we do not speak of an empty faith, but of what Scripture calls faith working through love, which leads a man to do in his life the works that God has commanded in His Word. That's where true holiness comes from. It comes from a heart that's focused in faith on God's glory first and on loving Him who first loved us, on pleasing Him who freely gave so much in order to save us. That's where true holiness comes from. It comes from a heart that rejoices in the Gospel. Listen to the words of John Colquhoun who ministered the gospel in the late 1700s and early 1800s in Scotland. These are beautiful and convicting and important words. He says, When a man is driven 
to acts of obedience by the dread of God's wrath revealed in the law and not drawn to them by the belief in God's love revealed in the Gospel. When he fears God because of his power and justice and not at all because of his goodness, when he regards God more as an avenging judge than as a compassionate friend and father, and when he contemplates God rather as terrible in majesty than as infinite in grace and mercy, then that man shows that he is under the dominion, or at least under the prevalence, of a legal spirit. He shows that he is under the influence of this hateful temper when his hope of divine mercy is raised by the liveliness of his own frame in duties and not by his discovery of the freeness and riches of redeeming grace offered to him in the gospel. Or when he expects eternal life, not as the gift of God through Jesus Christ, but as a recompense from God for his obedience and suffering. That man plainly shows that he is under the power of a legal spirit. See, the Gentiles in Antioch weren't driven by a legal spirit. They weren't driven by a self-focused spirit of fear or pride, but by a Christ-consumed, grace-governed spirit of love for God as their merciful, kind, loving Father that caused them to rejoice in God's grace towards them, and to glorify His Word. And that love for God, see, is what caused what happened next. That love for God that was engendered and nurtured and fueled by the love of God for them in Christ Jesus is what caused fruitfulness to then be born in their lives. And the evidence of that fruitfulness is a simple, straightforward statement of Luke's there in verse 49. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Why? How? How was it spreading throughout the whole region? Paul and Barnabas weren't doing it yet. They hadn't left Antioch yet. It wasn't happening automatically by itself. It was happening because the Gentile believers who were rejoicing in the gospel and glorifying the word of the Lord, being filled to overflowing with the love of God, were taking the gospel message of His love and, and, and proclaiming it all over the place. And it was spreading like wildfire. And they were doing that for two reasons. First of all, simply because... The gospel of God's great love towards us in Jesus Christ forges a love for God in us. A spirit of gratitude towards Him who gave so much so freely to us. And that's what causes us to seek His pleasure and His glory, not our own. And that's the, the soil out of which true obedience to Him really grows and thrives. Not out of pride, not out of fear, 
Not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of any focus on me, on self that tries to gain some benefit for me by doing good stuff. But out of a focus on our great God who loved us so freely and so sacrificially that it cultivates in us a desire to honor Him and to glorify Him no matter what the cost is to me because of the cost that He endured for me. So, see, full of that God-centered desire to glorify God, to love God by keeping His commandments, these believing Gentiles went out to obey Him, to proclaim the Word, to make disciples no matter what the cost, even if they endured oppression and persecution for it. And then secondly, they also went... Not just out of a love for the God who had so loved them, but also out of a selfless love for other sinners who needed this gospel, who needed this love, this grace, this mercy of God every bit as much as they had needed it. Do you, do you feel that? Do you sense that? Do you experience that urgency, that, that sense of desperate need to tell people about this love by which you have been delivered from the wrath of God which is to come? Do you have a firm grasp of the reality of what we've all been saved from? Jesus Christ was not sent from heaven. Jesus Christ did not come and lay down His own human life and suffer the horror and the agony of the cross in His own body. And He was not miraculously raised from the dead in order to deliver you from poverty or from earthly oppression or or victimization or from unhappiness or from sadness or from low self-esteem. Yes, those are problems that He cares about, but He didn't die for those things. He wasn't raised for those things. He came, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 10, to deliver us from the wrath of God that is to come. From an eternity of His righteous judgment in the outer darkness of everlasting hell. And I know we don't like to contemplate everlasting hell. But it is the reality of the wrath of God that is to come and will come and consume all who fail and refuse to repent. We don't like to think about how horrific it would be to suffer the agony of the fullness of the wrath of holy, almighty God for eternity forever and ever, in the words of Revelation chapter 14, without end. Experiencing the torment of the fullness of God's wrath for a single second. Do you want to go to a red-hot burner on your stove and and touch it for a single second? One one one-thousand. That's bad enough. Imagine the fullness of the wrath of God for one second. That's beyond comprehension. For an hour, for a day, for a year, for a decade, for a millennium. But forever and ever, without rest, day or night, is is incomprehensibly horrifying. 
does that horrifying reality, coupled with the glorious reality that Jesus endured the fullness of God's divine wrath for us and delivered us from it, so that instead of us suffering the agony of it forever and ever without rest, without end, does the freedom of that great love of God and the knowledge of what He's freed us from, does it not instill in us, forge in us, and cause to flourish in us a deep, abiding gratitude toward the God who is our Father and a deep, abiding sense of urgency for people in this world, people you know, People in our lives, co-workers, neighbors, friends, family members, who if they die in their unbelief, if Christ returns before they would believe, they will endure the torment of the fullness of the wrath of God forever and ever. Do you feel that urgency? These Gentiles did. The love for God and the love for the lost bore a fruit in them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.14 says it with zero ambiguity. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they going to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how can they hear unless someone's preaching it? Unless someone's proclaiming that the name of Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men may be saved. That Jesus Christ is the only way. That His name is the only name under heaven. And that no one comes to the Father. No one escapes the eternal torments of the wrath of God that is to come. Except through faith in Him. That gospel of everlasting salvation from the everlasting wrath of God against our sin is the power of God to save people who are dead in their sins. It is the voice of Jesus calling Lazarus out of the tomb by supernaturally raising him from death to life. Jesus is the resurrection. Jesus is the life. Everyone who believes on him will live eternally even after their bodies die in this world. What other purpose, what other pursuit could ever command and dominate the lives of people who have been saved by His grace alone? These Gentiles didn't get saved and then rejoice that they've been saved and didn't didn't have to worry about going to hell anymore and could look forward to going to heaven and so they could just kick back and enjoy life in this world and do nothing like they were on a big cruise ship. I know, it's a, I know it's an old and tired cliche, but, but the church of Jesus Christ is not a big cruise ship. It's a big battleship. All hands on deck. We are at war against the forces of darkness. And eternal souls are at stake. If they don't hear the gospel preached, then they'll perish eternally, justly in their sin and in their rebellion against God. And if they do hear the gospel preached and then reject it, like we saw 
earlier in Acts 13, then they'll perish eternally, justly, for their sin and rejection of the gospel. But if they hear and believe by the life-giving grace of God, they will be delivered from God's eternal wrath and they will live forever in the everlasting peace of His glory. Look, it's only up to us to tell them. To call them to repent of their sin and believe on Jesus and be saved. If they reject it, then in the hardness of their own sinful hearts, they alone are culpable. It's not on you. Here in Acts 13, when people believed, Paul and Barnabas couldn't take any credit. All the glory is given to God, who sovereignly, who supernaturally saved through the power of the gospel. And when the Jews rejected the gospel, it wasn't because Paul didn't do a good enough job preaching it, right? It wasn't because he wasn't persuasive enough or clever enough. It wasn't because he didn't explain it clearly enough. No, no, no. Their rejection of the gospel was entirely on their own sinfully, pridefully, hard-hearted shoulders. And so when those Jewish people rejected the gospel in their sinful pride and incited this, this persecution against Paul and Barnabas for faithfully preaching the gospel and literally ran them out of town, what did Paul and Barnabas do? Verse 51 says, they shook the dust from their feet against them, against the ones who had rejected it. And they went on to Iconium. A lot of times, probably we think of this action of shaking the dust off of their feet as as kind of a symbol just of resignation. Well, that didn't work. On to the next place, right? Listen, it means a lot more than that. Well, we tried, we, we stirred up the dust, hoping you'd accept the gospel, but you didn't, so now we'll clean the dust off our feet and we'll just move on. No, it's more than that. Listen to Jesus' own words to His disciples in Luke chapter 10. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, chapter 10. And realize that shaking the dust off the feet symbolized a lot more than just defeat or resignation. In Luke 10, Jesus, while He was living in this world, appointed 70 disciples to go on ahead of Him into every town and every village that they came across and tell everyone that they encountered that the time was now to repent and believe the good news of salvation in Him. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. It's at hand. And He told them, if you enter into a town with this message of God's kingdom and repentance and belief, a message of the free grace of salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the people of that town reject you and reject the gospel and reject the kingdom. And Jesus says, if they reject me, if they reject eternal life, here's what you tell them, Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. And the sense that Jesus meant is this, that the people who had rejected the Gospel were in their own sinful unbelief so willfully 
doomed to destruction under the wrath of God that is to come, that even the dirt of their town was condemned. And so that dirt, that God-condemned dust, needed to be removed from the disciples' feet. Jesus told him there in Luke chapter 10, He said, I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than it will be for that town. And see, that's, that's what, this is what lies behind Luke's words here in Acts 13. That, that when the Jews rejected the Gospel and persecuted the servants of Christ who brought the Gospel, they shook the dust from their feet. See, that, that imagery carries a very real sense of the judgment of God. Of the strongest possible warning to anyone in that place to not align themselves with the ones who are opposing the Gospel, but to repent and to rejoice in the Gospel like those Gentiles have and to be delivered from God's eternal wrath and to rest in His everlasting grace and love. So see Paul and Barnabas shaking the dust from their feet and moving on from the place that had rejected the Gospel. That was... That was them saying, we know that we can't save you by our own ability. Our place is to tell you of what God has done to save you. Our place is to call you to come to the only one who can save you. And if you reject that call, you're not rejecting us. You're rejecting Him. And if you do that, what comes next is at our hands. And you will be left in His sovereign, holy hands. And Hebrews 10.31 says, does it not, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God if you're a sinner. So listen, number one, The greatest fruit that can be born in the lives of those who have been mercifully delivered from the wrath of God that is to come isn't just their overcoming sinful temptations and the mortification of the lusts and the deeds of the flesh and standing firm against against the, the moral evils that are being promoted in this world in their own lives. It is that. Of course it's that. That's the start though, of sanctification. That's the the beginning of what it means and what it looks like to be transformed by the renewing of our minds and conformed to the image of Jesus in the way we live our lives. Resisting worldly temptations and ungodliness, insisting on biblical, godly, moral virtues, that's the start. That's sanctification 101. It's it's basic undergraduate Christianity, but the postgraduate work, the fruit of the Holy Spirit that God is really cultivating in you goes beyond your own personal, individual resistance of fleshly temptation and your, your growth in godly morality and it presses on into the vocational work 
of calling people out of darkness and into the light of the glory of Christ no matter what the cost. Because it's when the church stands firm and by His grace faithfully suffers, that's when the Lord bears the greatest fruit. And, number two, when people reject the gospel that you faithfully proclaim as the fruit of the love that God has instilled in you because His love has been shed abroad in your heart. If they reject it, no, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Him. They're not in your hands. They're in His The unbelieving Jews in Pisidian Antioch were in the sinful pride of their fallen hearts. They were every bit as staunchly opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to its implications as anyone in history ever has been. And so they mounted the most strategic opposition to the gospel that they could devise. They influenced and, and they enlisted the pressure of the most prominent and influential and worldly powerful people that they could muster to try to cut off the progress of the gospel at the pass. But in their sin and stubbornness, the world will never ever learn. In his his hateful rage against God, the devil will never concede that you cannot outblank the Holy Spirit of the Most High God. When Satan tried at the cross to destroy the Son of God, he only ended up accomplishing the sovereign purposes of God through the suffering servant who was pierced for our transgressions. And at every intersection since then in history, whenever it's been tempting for Christians to think that unbelief and godlessness and wickedness have the upper hand in this world, the sovereign hand of God has always prevailed. The sovereign purposes of God have always been accomplished. In the whole region there around Pisidian Antioch, Even when persecution was raging, the gospel was spreading like wildfire. Even when Paul and Barnabas were forced out of town, the church there didn't fail. The church didn't falter. The gospel didn't fail. Because the people of God were confident. Not ultimately in Paul and Barnabas and what they could do. And not certainly in themselves and what they could do maybe without Paul and Barnabas there. No, they were confident in the divine supernatural power of God that had raised their own dead hearts and opened their own blind eyes and emboldened them and empowered them to be His witnesses no matter what the cost. They were in the midst of persecution with with Paul and Barnabas gone What were they left with? They were left with the power and the presence of God the Holy Spirit who had given them life in the first place. Once when I was doing youth ministry and I was contemplating going off to college and and I was worried 
about what would happen to the youth group if I left. A very wise person at that point in my life said to me, don't worry, you'll just be leaving us with the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the power of the Gospel. It's going to be okay. So see, that's why they were filled with joy. Because they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so they were able to keep being witnesses for Christ and bearing fruit for His kingdom. So see, the massive opposition to the Gospel and the strategic persecution of Paul and Barnabas and the fact that Paul and Barnabas had to leave meant that all of these brand new, fledgling Gentile Christians, all they had to rely on, all they had to depend on, was the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit and the living active power of the Word of God and the Gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And all of that should be so powerfully and profoundly encouraging to us in this time, in this place, where where the antithesis is getting pretty obvious, right? Where the contrast between darkness and light and good and evil and truth and godless lies, where the the contrast between the powers of this age and the power of God in His Word, where it couldn't be more clear and more obvious, All of us, we should all be, all of us who have been delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and whose eyes have been opened and who have been raised from death to life in Christ Jesus, we should all of us be filled with this confidence and with this abiding love and gratitude to our great and merciful God and with this abiding sense of love for Him and for the lost that would compel us especially now. No matter what the cost, to redeem the time, as Paul says in Ephesians, for these days are evil. To be diligent by the power of His grace and love within us. To bear fruit like the Gentiles there in Pisidian Antioch did. For the sake of the glory of Christ and for the cause of His kingdom. That is why we're here. That is why we live in this world still. Amen? Amen. Let's all pray together that the love of God that is shed abroad in our hearts would constrain us, would control us to see beyond our own desires, our own ambitions in this world and to be diligent and faithful to bear fruit for His kingdom. Let's, Let's pray as we prepare to sing and come to the table. Our God and our Father, again, how grateful we are for the power of Your Word and for all that You have done for us to give us new life and make us rejoice in this Gospel and glorify Your Word and save us from our sin and deliver us from the wrath that is to come. Father, would You keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And as we are running this race, God, Would you not only keep us from being encumbered by the sin that so easily entangles us and stumbling along the way over and over again. Father, would you fill us with a longing desire 
to bear fruit for your kingdom, to make disciples, to see lost souls saved as they hear the gospel come off of our lips and as its power by the ministry of your Holy Spirit destroys their hearts of stone and recreates in them hearts of flesh and love for God. Father, fill us with an urgency. Fill us with love. Fill us with gratitude. Father, fill us with faithfulness to bear fruit for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together in response to what we've learned and heard in God's word. And on page 10, we're going to sing together, Breathe on me, breath of God. Stand and let's sing. Thank you.